Well, good afternoon to all of you. It's uh, a privilege for me to be with you once again, and this time uh, with you having uh, a called pastor uh, that's uh, making his way through the process to be installed here as um, a teaching elder. And uh, I've been praying about that with you, and uh, it's a joy to kind of be here on this side of that with you. It's been a long journey, and uh, I think God is bringing you into a, a, a good time ahead of you. I trust that that will be the case. So this is the uh, first Sunday of the new year, and as we're thinking about new things, uh, I kind of wanted to go back to an old thing <clears throat> that causes us to readdress how it is that we are in the kingdom of God and the work that the Lord has done to bring that about. Let me begin this way, that Reformed theology it has a nickname, and that nickname is Covenant Theology. Now, Reformed theology was obviously developed during the Reformation period, although the strands of it go all the way back through the church and many authors and writers. Covenant theology, though, is an understanding of the Bible that basically helps us to see God's plan of redemptive history through the unfolding of covenants that are there. It's an enormous topic. In fact, I teach one whole course at the seminary I'm affiliated with on covenant theology. So it's gigantic in, in the uh, amount of material that are there. Now, there are three overarching covenants that is commonly understood of regarding God's plan of redemption for us. The first would be the covenant of redemption. That's an individual covenant that's made among the members of the Godhead in eternity past. That's, these are sermons in itself. There then is the covenant of works that was initiated with Adam. And basically, if he did what God had told him to do, he was promised eternal life on that. But if he didn't, the repercussions for that for himself as well as his seed, his posterity that would follow him, would be the bad repercussions of those works, which would be death. And we all know that all too well. But then we understand that even in the midst of that covenant-breaking time that happened in Genesis chapter 3, there's the beginning of what's called the covenant of grace that's there. It is spoken to, uh, actually, Satan for his part in what happened in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we have that statement that's made that, that God will put uh, enmity or a hostility between uh, uh, his seed and the seed of the woman, and that there would be one coming that would crush the head of the serpent, but in the process of doing that, he himself would also sustain a wound. That's the beginning. That's the only good news that's there in chapter 3. That someone is coming to undo what everything else had taken place in chapter 3. So I like to think of that as an acorn. That is the acorn. And then there are successive covenants that come along that are revealed in Scripture that helped to bring this out into a gigantic oak tree, the second of which being the Abrahamic covenant, the next one being the Mosaic covenant, 
the fourth being the Davidic covenant, and then we have the new covenant that's in Christ. So if we were thinking about this in terms of an oak tree, it begins in Genesis chapter 3.15 with this acorn, and by the time you get to Christ, the whole tree is leafed out. But you don't get the complete understanding of God's covenant of grace until you see the entire spectrum of those covenants being laid out. Think of it this way, that just like I need these glasses to be able to see clearly everything and everyone that's here, the covenants that are revealed in Scripture give us the lens to be able to understand redemptive history. Hence the idea, covenant theology, and the nickname that it is in regards to Reformed theology in, in general. Today, I want to put a floodlight on the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is revealed in three sections of Scripture, the first of which you heard read this morning, and that's Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. This is the calling of Abraham. Then we have chapter 15, which is the making of this covenant. And then in chapter 17 of the book of Genesis is the sign that is given of this covenant. So if you take those three sections of Scripture and you put them together, that constitutes what we understand as being the Abrahamic covenant. Now I want to put a, a finer pinpoint then on chapter 15, which is the ratification of the covenant. We're going to talk a little bit at the end of the sermon as it relates to chapter 17, but most of my focus will be on chapter 15. So in chapter 12, that's when Abraham was called. And that's when God says to him, look at the stars of the heavens. This is, this is what I'm going to be like. I'm going to give this, this uh, agreement will between me, me and you and your seed. At that time, he had no children. So that brings us to chapter 15, and we read these words beginning at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens, and count the stars if you were able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other, 
but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. And on that day the Lord God made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants... I have given this land from the river Egypt as far as the great river Euphrates. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we examine your word, we ask that you'd give us illumination and understanding. We pray that you'd take over my feeble lips to bring that word to your people this day. We ask, Lord, that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ here and that he would be honored and glorified and that the saints would be encouraged and uplifted. In the name of the Lord Jesus we pray, amen. So here is our outline. I want you to notice the event, secondly the consequences, and number three, the fulfillment. So let's work through this text beginning at verse 1 as it relates to the event. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Note that it is God's word that came to Abraham. This is also stated in verse 4, and this is the only word phrasing such as this in the entire book of Genesis. It's highlighting the idea that God is the one that takes the initiative. It wasn't Abram that was seeking God. It was, Abraham, it was God seeking Abram at this point. And so the word of the Lord came to Abram. And it's emphasized here with the unique phrasing that we find. God initiates the communication. And he is told at the outset to not fear. So we'd have to ask the question as we begin, why would it be fearful? There could be a couple reasons here. One being he had just routed the eastern kings. We didn't read that, but that is what preceded that. Perhaps he feared their revenge. Secondly, he could also be fearful of the presence of God. This will make you fearful for sure. And third, he may have been fearful that God's promise was not true. Remember, this had already been spoken to him back in Genesis chapter 12. It had already been 10 years since that promise had been given. Perhaps he was fearful that that wasn't going to come about. Verses 2 and 3. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, 
one born in my house is my heir. He is childless here, and the language is quite descriptive. It literally reads, I am one who is stripped. It's how the Hebrew communicates this idea of not having an heir. I mean, it's a very serious problem that's going on here. I don't have anyone of my own loins to carry this on. Nonetheless, you've given me this promise, and here I am. So I have this man who's Eliezer. I guess he's going to be my heir. God corrects this and says, that's not the case. Verse 6, he is told again that God is going to do this, and the text specifically says that Abraham, Abram believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. We note here that there had to be assent plus personal trust. So when we're talking about faith, and without faith it's impossible to please God, it is a gift of God, and we ask the question, so what is it? It's comprised of three entities. The first would be information. It's the correct information. And he is trusting in that by giving it assent. So at this point, you have right information, agreement, saying the right thing. But for faith to be legitimate, there has to be the third component, which is personal trust, which means we give ourselves to what it is that we say that we believe. That is legitimate faith, and that is what Abram had at this point, and that is a sermon in itself. That brings us to verses 7 to 10. God now performs the ratification, or what we would consider the signing, or the officially validating of the covenant. It's the ceremony here which validates the promise that was given back in Genesis chapter 12. Now, in order to understand what's taking place here, we need to comprehend the ancient Near East custom of ratifying a covenant. I want you to think, when I use the term covenant, I want you to think in your minds of the word contract. We don't use covenant, everyday language, but we do use the word contract. They're very similar, but there is a difference. Most of our contractual arrangements, in fact, all of them, are bilateral in nature. Best illustration of this would be when you go to a car dealer to buy a car. You look at various automobiles. You decide on an automobile. The uh, owner of the dealership is presenting you with the cost for the car. There's some kind of negotiation that goes on with this as far as the price needs to be lower maybe, or maybe something else is added in as a benefit to the buying of the car. You both sign a contract. Money is exchanged. The car is purchased. It is a contractual arrangement. It is what we would call a bilateral agreement. However, we note in Scripture that the covenants that are made by God are unilateral. That is... He is dictating the terms of the contract, okay? And in this sense, God's covenants fit the ancient Near East customs of these kinds of contracts or covenantal agreements. We refer to them as suzerain vassal treaties. Now think of it this way. The suzerain is the king, and the vassal is a people group that has been subjugated by the king. 
Consequently, the king dictates the terms of an agreement. I am going to do this, this, and this for you, and you will do that for me. Okay? This is a, a tax, perhaps, that they're going to be levied against, or something that's going to come back to the suzerain. He's going to provide them something. Usually it's a peace and, and uh, protection from their neighbors, and something else is coming back to him. But there's no negotiation. The suzerain dictates the terms, and this kind of arrangement is found in all kinds of extant literature outside of the Bible, and it's in all, just about all of the law codes of the ancient Near East, suzerain vassal treaties. <clears throat> Consequently, there is no negotiation, as would be the case in our illustration of the sale of the automobile. In this case, what we're talking about here with God, he is dictating the terms. And this is similar to what we found in the initiation of the covenant of works. When Adam is created, God initiates a covenant that's based on works. And basically God says, if you do this, this, and this, you're going to live. If you do that, you're going to die. And it will not only be effectual for you, but also for your seed as well. So, if Adam would have done everything that was expected of him, that is, works, he would live. And his posterity would live. But if he did not, then the repercussions of that covenant would be there. But Adam did not negotiate this. There wasn't any sense about Adam basically saying, hey, wait a minute, time out. I'm not necessarily on board with all of the mandates of this. No. It was just dictated by God. It is in that sense, a suzerain contractual arrangement. <clears throat> what follows then in our Genesis text is a macabre scene. We have hacked animals that are laid in parallel rows. They are all three years old, indicating that they are ritually mature and proper for the ratification of the ceremony that's going to follow. At this point, according to ancient Near East customs, in a contractual arrangement, what we're talking about, both parties would walk between the cut-apart animals. Remember that at this time, there's no photocopier to validate the details of the covenant or the contract. There's no notary with a validating stamp. There's no witness signatures. There's no photo of the proceedings and no signatures at the bottom of a sales agreement. The custom held that both parties would walk through the cut animals and effect declare that if one of them does not honor the agreement, then be it done to me as was done to these animals. Now, common understanding in the ancient Near East is that the gods would adjudicate the wrongdoing. So upon fear of what the gods would do, the individuals walk through those cut animals and that was the ratification. That was the signing agreement. The people would honor their part of what was being done that day. Now, the making of a covenant carried with it the idea of cutting. In fact, sometimes that language is that way even in the scripture, to cut a covenant. And it comes along with this idea of the cutting apart of these animals. 
In fact, there could be, I don't know this for sure, there could be some linkage here with the, reason, with the request when you go into the auto dealer, can you cut me a deal? Okay? Possible. Possible. The sacrifice of animals has nothing to do here with the atonement for sin. This is not a sin atonement ceremony. It has nothing to do with it. So I don't want you to think as we continue on with some idea that this has something of a connection of the atonement for our sins. This is not that. This is the making of a covenant upon pains of death for failure to abide by the agreement. Notice verse 11. Verse 11 is very strange and it has been accompanied by much speculation, the idea of the birds coming down on the carcasses and what this might mean. It perhaps is symbolic of foreign countries that oppress Abraham's descendants, perhaps trials that his heirs would encounter. I think it's best to avoid allegory at this point. We really don't know. It's just a statement that was there. The birds descended, he chased them away. By verse 12, though, a deep sleep falls upon Abraham. Now, this is similar to the sleep that came upon Adam during the creation of Eve. Something solemn and extraordinary is going to take place. Abraham is fearful, we note here, and the actual rendering of this in Hebrew is, it's great terror. In fact, it reads, a terror of great darkness came upon him. Now, he may be contemplating a directive for him to walk through the carcasses. Maybe he's in terror because he knows maybe he's going to be expected to do that. Verses 13 to 16, a prophecy is given here that initially is bad news. His descendants will only live in the right land after they have lived in the wrong land for a period of time. And we note here that the term Amorite, until the, the sin of the Amorite is fulfilled, this is a symbolic reference to many pagan people groups that are listed in verses 19 to 21, which we did not read. Verses 17 and 18, now the extraordinary, unbelievable happens. God does something unbelievable here. He himself walks through the carcasses. A smoking oven and a torch proceed through the dead animals. Now this is what we would call a theophany. Theophany is a, a compound Greek word. Theos means God. Venestai means appearance. You put them together, it's an appearance of God. So similar to the burning bush that Moses encountered, here we have this, this smoking oven and a torch that are passing through these animals. The smoke and the fire, which were viewed also in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that guided Israel, uh, and, the, and the pictures of that even when they got to even Mount Sinai, we have those same uh, uh, images that are there. So it's an extraordinary thing that happens. This is the only place in the Bible where we have something like this, and there's nothing in extant literature about this. Remember, it's the gods that were supposed to adjudicate these kinds of agreements. In this particular case, we have God making the covenant, and he's passing through the animals. That's the event. Now let's note the consequences. Verse 18 notes, 
that God made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham didn't make this covenant. Abraham didn't negotiate this covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham. It is a bond in blood. God did this himself. There is nothing like it in the ancient Near East literature. As I said earlier, the gods would adjudicate covenant breaking. But in this case, God himself would honor the agreement. And to show that, he passes through those animals himself. The consequences here would be that Abraham would have descendants and that they would possess the promised land. God swore to Abraham by none higher than himself to bring about the promise. Be it done to me as these animals. In fact, one of my professors at RTS said it this way, be it done to me as these animals, if I do not bring to pass your word, that by passing between the rows of carnage, God swore a curse on himself. If I do not keep my promise to you, may I be torn in pieces such as these animals. Richard Pratt. Now, <clears throat> the rest of Genesis, Exodus, and parts of Joshua is about God's promise being realized, and at that point, it's a done deal. But there's a greater fulfillment here. We move in the third section that Abraham's covenant foreshadows the great work of Christ. Now note carefully what Abraham did not do when God, what he did do when God passed through the car carcasses. And that is, he did nothing. He was asleep. Question. What did you do before you became born again? Well, it was worse than sleep. We were dead. Right? Isn't this Paul's remark here to the Ephesian church, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all too lived in the lust of our flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Okay? A person who is sick and deathly ill still might have enough wherewithal within themselves to crawl on the floor, grab the phone, and dial 911 for help. But a dead person does nothing. Abraham did nothing. And this portends the great work of God that happened in our own lives. Just as the word of the Lord came to Abraham is the same way it comes to us. And as Paul continues, this is how he did it. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but then he writes here in verse 4 of chapter 2 to Ephesus, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you are saved through faith, 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He made us alive. That's the essence of becoming born again. People do not choose to become born again. They become born again and they choose to follow Christ. Their will comes into play at that point because they have desire. Their desire is that they're hearing the word of God, they understand that they're a sinner, and that they need to be redeemed. And they say, I am a sinner. I want to be saved. And they make a decision. But what Paul's talking about here, and what the discussion with Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John, that you must be born again, what that is all about is what precedes the decision. And up to that point, we're not just asleep, we're dead. We're absolutely dead. Christ took all of the responsibility and laid it on himself, the full curse of the old covenant, which is the covenant of works. Now, I said that was initiated with Adam, and he did not obey that and plunged himself and his seed into sin. Jesus comes as the second Adam, and everything that the first Adam failed to do, Jesus did. That's why he is so methodical about this, particularly in John. You see it all through the writing of the, of the gospel account, and it culminates in the high priestly prayer in John 17. Everything you've given me to do, I've done. Everything you told me to say, I've said. That was the act of obedience of Christ. He did it all. But then he also passively obeyed. He actively obeyed by doing what God had told him to do and to say. But then he passively obeyed by submitting himself to the retribution of God's righteous indignation for our sins. Not for his own, but for our sins. He did all of that for our benefit. Consequently, we know here in the scripture that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, Hebrews chapter 9. And we also know, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. That is what Jesus did. He walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Now again, the covenant that we're talking about this morning is a covenant-making ceremony. It wasn't for sin. But what I want you to see is Jesus took on the full retribution of God's righteous indignation, he did it all in that sense, the same way God did it all when he walked through those pieces of the carcass. Everything. Everything that was needed for us, not only to come into the kingdom, but the very thing that this day keeps you in the kingdom. You not only have life and breath in your mortal body, that impulse that, that not a doctor on the planet can tell you where it comes from. They can, they can explain to us how it works. They know there's an electrical impulse there, but where, where does that come from? How is it generated? But even more significantly than that impulse that gives us human life is the spiritual life that was breathed into us, that we see and we hear, while the rest of the world, seeing they see not, and hearing they hear not. Why is that? Is it because you had a better intellect? Is it that your, your intellectual ability to reason this out was better than everybody else? 
Or, or was it that your parents did a better job with you somehow? Or, or was it that you were just born with an inclination to be kind of more open to these kinds of things? No. The scripture is clear here. We did nothing. We're all a bunch of Abrahams. We all were asleep at the switch. But consequently, because of what Jesus did, we are now a part of the number of those stars that Abraham saw. You remember that? You, this is it. You want to look? You want to know what your heritage is going to be like? He takes Abraham outside. He says, look at that. You see that? Now, if you go back to the beginning of when the Abrahamic covenant was given in chapter 12, it says at the end of verse 3, uh, when God makes the covenant with him, and he says, in you... All the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant was far bigger than what would become the nation of Israel. And it was fully, wasn't fully realized until Jesus come, came. And when he said in John 8, he said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He didn't mean every last living soul on the planet. He meant there would be people being called from every people group all over the world. That what was going on that was not going to be a Jewish thing that was just simply hanging on that cross for just the nation of Israel. It was for all that God would bring to himself. Hence, we've got Paul's remarks here to Rome. Listen carefully, chapter 4, as Paul begins to talk about this promise to Abraham. He writes in verse 13, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be an heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. For this reason, it says by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only of those who are of the law, listen, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who was father of us all. See, it's proper for you to think in terms of yourself as an actual heir of Abraham. You are Abraham's descendant. Each one of you were one of those twinkling lights that was up there from the design all the way from the beginning. Paul puts this again to the church of Galatia when he's straightening, straightening out the Galatian heir. He says in chapter 3, beginning at verse 6, he says, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is of those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of the faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And that's you, and that's me. Now, to round this out, I said to you there were three sections here of the Abrahamic covenant. There's the initiation of it in chapter 12, 1 to 3. Then there's the ratification ceremony we just read about in chapter 15. But then a sign of that same covenant is given in chapter 17. 
And what we noted here is that the Abraham covenant, which prefigures the way of salvation, was initiated again in chapter 12, ratified in chapter 15, but the outward sign is given in chapter 17. Now in chapter 17, it delineates the requirement of circumcision. A knife would cut away the male foreskin, and it signifies that we need to be cut away from the world and fleshly sin. I want you to note here the interface between chapter 15 and chapter 17. In chapter 15, God was doing it all, but in chapter 17, we must do something. Now in this regard, let me preface it this way. These chapters tell us about faith and works. Calvin remarked that we are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. In a sermon, certainly before his death, he remarked, quote, Thus faith can no more be separated from works than the sun from its heat. If true faith is evident, then good works naturally follow. Okay, so let's make sure we understand this. The world thinks that by putting their good works together, somehow it outweighs what's bad, and they will present themselves to God and say, Look at what I've done. That's putting the works in front of them. And we know from Scripture, no one is going to be justified in that way. Because if you've just broken the law one time in thought or deed, it's all out the window, right? But what Calvin is saying, and what reformers have said from the beginning, is that our faith is what justifies us, not our works. But if the faith is present, then works follow behind us. In other words, they're in the wake of our traversing through life. They're not in the front to say, look, I'm worthy. They follow behind in saying, this is evidence of the worthiness of Christ's work in me. So when we look at this, consider chapter 15 and chapter 17. In 15, God does it all, and in chapter 17, we do something. So let me call a couple things, four things to your attention. In chapter 15, this is against salvation by works, because God did it all, right? In chapter 17, salvation produces works, because we do something there. There had to be that sign that was done. In chapter 15, secondly, we are set free, but in chapter 17, we're learning... We're not free to do whatever we want. Thirdly, in chapter 15, you don't do anything, but in chapter 17, now you do something. And finally, in chapter 15, we see Jesus as Savior. In chapter 17, we also see him, Jesus as Lord. You can't live your life any way you want to live it. And that sign of that covenant is teaching that to us. We now work because God works within us. Paul writes to Philippi chapter 2, So then, my beloved, just as you have obeyed always, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So again, it's because of God's work in us that good works follow behind us. This sermon in a sentence. He walked through the valley of the shadow of death 
that we might walk in a bright city with no death. When Abraham cut those animals apart, dread fell on him. He knew what was going on here. It was terrifying. But all the while, the goal was to bring us to a bright city on a hill with no death. He walked through the valley of the shadow of death that we might walk in a bright city with no death. There you have it. The gospel in the ceremony of ratification that was given to Abraham. Stonebridge Church, you're beginning a new year. You have a lot of good things that are in front of you. Your pastor is coming. He's going to be installed. You've been through a rough time over these many years without a pastor. You're going in the right direction. And, and I would trust you're coming into the promised land here as far as some of the fruit to enjoy. But never forget where you came from. You did nothing to deserve this. Nothing. We were all asleep. We were all dead. God did it all. He did it all for us. And isn't that beautifully going to be signed to us in the sacrament of communion that we have before us today?